welcome to the Redeemer Rockford Students Podcast. My name is JT Stead, and I'm the host and also the student and outreach pastor here at Redeemer Church. And uh, I, along with all of our leaders, are recovering from an awesome uh, rooted retreat that we had this last week. We took about 154 total people out to Leaf River in Ogle County and had a two-night retreat, Um, just camping out. Some of us were intense. It was pretty intense. Um, Yes, that's a dad joke. I'm a dad now, so I could officially do that. Uh, But we had a great time. And uh, I brought one of my good friends, Andrew Hartung, out from Southern California. He attends my dad's church, and he's served in the youth ministries and the college ministries. And he's a teacher now at a private Christian school out there, and just a lover of God and His Word, and really gifted at teaching the Bible. And so we looked at the topic of holiness all weekend long. And so what you're about to hear are sermons from our Rooted Retreat delivered by Andrew. And so I hope that you're encouraged by them and that they only bolster your faith and build you up in the knowledge of Jesus Christ so that you may behold him, love him, treasure him, and live for him. Thanks for listening. And what used to be a terrifying and dangerous thing for us has become a place of warmth and a place of comfort. And the glory of the gospel far outshines even the glory that was manifest in the law. And if you're a Christian here today, I ask you this question that Paul asked of the church of Corinth. He said, do you not know that you are a temple to God? Maybe you don't know that, but if you're a Christian, we're told that the Holy Spirit, God himself, has taken residence in our heart. Right? And if you think about what that means, what is all being, being said, if you know anything about what the temple was and how specific the temple was and glorious, the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament actually empowered the people who were just the builders of the tabernacle. Just the artists. God said, I care so much about what my residence is like that I empowered men just to make it beautiful aesthetically. And God says that he is now content to dwell with us and to dwell in us, the Holy Spirit himself. So in the triune act of redemption, what God has willed, what the Father has willed in eternity, the Son accomplishes on the cross, in his life, and even now at the right hand. And it's important for us to remember that the Holy Spirit does not fail to apply Jesus' work. The Holy Spirit accomplishes his work too. And his work is to change our hearts, to convict us of sin, and to carry us to the end. The Holy Spirit changes us, not in a way different than the way that he changed us even to give us repentance. It's a work that He does on us. So what the Father wills and the Son accomplishes, the Spirit applies. When Jesus was with His disciples the night that He was going to be betrayed, one of the things He promised them is that I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. His disciples, like they tend to do, were kind of missing the point of a lot of what He was saying, because He was saying, I need to depart And I need to go away. And where I'm coming, you can't go right now. And they're like, we'll go anywhere you go. Tell us where it is. We're not scared. And Jesus is like, it's not 
like a crazy adventure. I'm going back to heaven. I'm going back to my father. But it's to your advantage that I leave. He says, because if I don't leave, I can't send you the helper, the Holy Spirit. Jesus tells his, his disciples that it is to your advantage that instead of having Jesus himself present with his disciples, it's to their advantage that he leave so that the Holy Spirit can actually change their hearts. Right in the Old Testament, you had people who were not indwelt by the Holy Spirit, so they don't have the promise, they didn't have the promise that we did, and they were struggling to follow the law, and then Jesus comes, and so it's better, we have Jesus physically with us, but there's still a problem. People have dead hearts. And so even having Jesus in your presence teaching you is not as significant as what the Holy Spirit is able to accomplish in your heart now. And we look forward to a day where we're going to be glorified, where we have the Holy Spirit with us, we're in the presence of Christ, we're, we're with God himself, and all the best of all worlds collide. But right now, it would not be a good trade to say, I wish Jesus was just here to help me, if it costs you the Holy Spirit. Jesus says it's to your advantage. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, why don't you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We are told that we are to serve God. We are to live holy lives as Christians because the ministry that the Spirit has is more powerful than the ministry of the law. More glorious In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul makes a, a logical argument here. He says, If the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? So he says, if even when the Ten Commandments came, when the law came, it came with so much glory that people couldn't even look at Moses' face after the fact. It was certainly glorious. But he says, will not the ministry of the Holy Spirit have even more glory? Verse 9, for if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation... Right, That's what the law ultimately brought. It was a, a ministry that showed us that we were condemned, that we couldn't follow the law. He said, if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Right, So what the Holy Spirit is doing in actually applying the righteousness of Christ to you has far more glory. He says, indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. Who brought a flashlight to camp? Whenever you go to camp, there's someone who is very proud of the, the flashlight that they have. Like, check this bad boy out. It's new. Last year, I was bumping into trees. But this year, look at this thing. Right? That flashlight is mighty powerful if your eyes have dilated to the dark and you need light when there's darkness all around you. 
But that flashlight is not an impressive spectacle at noon. You're not going to show that flashlight off in the middle of the day. And what Paul is saying is that if the ministry that had a glory in its own right, there was a glory that was radiating off of Moses' face, that ministry is so overshined by the gospel and the ministry of the Holy Spirit that it has really no glory at all. You can't tell the flashlight was even on in the day. So no matter how powerful it is, even our big light that we go light up the, the flat top with, not that impressive in the middle of the day. It, the sun totally eclipses it. And so the glory that the Holy Spirit brings in actually making you more like Christ is far more powerful than the law under your own strength because the Holy Spirit actually changes your heart. In 2 Corinthians 3.11, he said, For if what was being brought to an end, being the law, came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. The law was never intended to be the end game. The law was never intended to be what made you righteous. It was intended to show you where you fall short, to drive you to Christ, to teach you that you need Christ. Verse 12, he says, since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Right? Saying Moses has to cover their face, and he uses this as an illustration to say that even now, sadly, when Paul is writing to the Corinthians, much of the Jews, when they read the Old Testament, it's like they still have a veil over their face. They're not getting the full glory because they haven't turned to Christ. But verse 16, he says, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Right? There's no hiding the radiant glory once one has turned to the Lord. Now the Lord, look at this in verse 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. In the way that the Spirit applies the holiness of Christ, it is not a slavery like the law was that says obey or die. The Spirit ministry says you are alive, so obey. You have been saved, so obey. Christ has paid the price, so obey. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. In verse 18, and we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit drives us to look to Christ, to look to God. And he says, by beholding God is how we are transformed from one degree of glory to the next. The author to the Hebrews will say, consider Jesus. Consider him, the founder and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Right? The way that we think about our Christian life is to look back at what Christ did that motivates us to obedience. Because what he's trying to motivate in the Hebrews is to persevere through persecution and through suffering. And he says, you have not suffered to the point of shedding blood. But who has? Jesus has. 
And that shedding of blood was your salvation. So we can follow in Jesus, not just in the day-to-day struggles of our personal sin, but the Holy Spirit has carried Christians to be bold for the faith, to stand at the point of death and say, I will not deny my Lord. One of the first Christian martyrs outside of the Bible was a disciple of the Apostle John named Polycarp. Funny name, Polycarp. But at the age of 86, he was, he was burned at the stake publicly. And they said to renounce the Lord Jesus. And he says, 86 years I have served my Lord, and he has done me no wrong. Why should I betray him now? I love that. I hope I have anywhere close to that cool of last words. But what drives someone to do that? The disciples, when Jesus was being betrayed, didn't even want to associate with him. Almost none of them even showed up to the crucifixion. So what turned the disciples from the disciples of the Passover to cowards who did not hold to their word to the disciples of Pentecost, who count it joy to stand before the authorities and to be smeared and to be killed and to suffer. What was the difference? It was the Holy Spirit. It was to their advantage that Jesus go. The disciples who were the guys that were always messing everything up, always cowards, always fools, ever, ever missing the point, when they received the Holy Spirit... They're the ones that were standing when no one stood by them. They were the ones that, by all available records, maybe one disciple wasn't killed at the end of their life. All of them ended as martyrs. And these were the guys that couldn't even say, I know Jesus, when he was being tried. Remember, Peter denies him three times, doesn't even associate. And they become the guys who stand up for him. The power of the Holy Spirit is the power of God to change you, and He lives inside of you if you're a believer. So, what does it look like to live the Christian life? You need to be convinced of truths that have happened, you need to be convinced of the gospel. Right? The Bible says in Romans 12, 1 through 2, that we are to not be conformed, we are not to conform to the world. Not to be conformed to the world. First Peter says, don't be conformed to your former passions. To the way you viewed the world, the things you desired, your former passions in ignorance. But to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Right? There is serious spiritual benefit to you deepening your understanding of the person of Jesus. Right? We're told in beholding him, we're transformed into his image. Right? We are to consider Jesus for motivation to persevere today. We need to make sure that we're feeding our minds. We need to know the God who saved us. So knowledge is essential. But also to conclude that rightly with obedience. There's a gospel logic. And what I mean by that is that Paul will say, if this is true, if you're a new creation, which is true, then you doing this is old creation. This is old man. This is the dead man. This is not logical. This is not reasonable. This is not right. It doesn't add up. Right? Paul is talking to the Corinthian church. And if there's one church that had the, the best combo of terrible doctrine and terrible sin issues, it's the Corinthian church. Right? They're bragging and boastful about certain sexual perversions in their church. 
And then someone, you know, they're like, and yeah, we also believe that no one's going to raise from the dead. They don't believe in the resurrection. They are struggling with sexual sin. And Paul appeals to them on the basis of the gospel. He warns them seriously. He says, the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. Neither will swindlers or idolaters or homosexuals or effeminate. And he goes through all this list of sins. And what does he say to them? He says, such were some of you. Talking to these people that are actively struggling with the sin in their life, he says, such were some of you. That is in the past. But you were washed. You were cleansed. You were sanctified by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came into your life and he set you apart for Christ. He says, this one belongs to Christ. So for you to live in the way that you used to live, to sin against God in that way, it actually violates a certain logic of the gospel, oddly enough. So the sin that remains in your life is not congruent with the Christian life. Right? And then there's also this sense in which the works that we do aren't even our own works. God is sovereign over the works that you do. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, we're reminded that we are saved by grace through faith, but we're also saved unto good works, to do good works for God. So there's a sense in which you are holy, so be holy. You are set apart. You are holy. So act like it. And those good works that you do, God planned beforehand that you should walk in them. There's an utter simplicity to the Christian life. Obey God because he already saved you. If you're a believer, you're, you know, what is motivating my obedience? And sometimes we struggle with, you know, I don't feel like I want to do certain things. Right? We feel like we're waiting for the perfect level of motivation. And we overcomplicate. If, if it was the Holy Spirit telling me to do good deeds, it would be easy. Not always. You're still working in this fallen body, in this flesh that fights. And the Bible says that the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. And the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. There's always going to be this kind of fight. Right? But if we've been saved by the Holy Spirit, we need to keep in step with the Holy Spirit. As Paul says to the Galatians. So... You were saved unto good works. You've received a holy calling. And the New Testament, still quoting the, old, quoting the Old Testament, commands Christians, be holy as God is holy. A quote from Leviticus. It's still a command for our lives. And what the gospel does in your day-to-day -day life in helping you to desire to be holy, to look to Christ, is it allows you to obey and kind of dream for God. Have big aspirations, have big goals for God, but there's also a simplicity that you can obey in the little things. If you're a Christian, you're going to have fruit in your life. But don't always overcomplicate what fruit is. Right? If you think about this, I'm a, you know, in my nature, what I was before God saved me, I'm a dead, rebellious sinner who is hated by others and hated, hating one another, and I have only sin in my life continually, and I never look for God, well then, the conviction I have over sin, and even in my failings, I want to obey my parents, and I was disrespectful for my mom, I want to, you know, apologize to my mom, those aren't small fruits. You don't have to go die in the jungle to bear fruit for Christ. Whatever the Spirit's doing in your life by way of conforming you to the image of Christ is not of you. 
Right? Anything that we can attribute to God, we can take comfort in. And we can say, you know what, the Lord is changing me little by little. But I can rest in the fact that he has a plan for me. And I can, you know, make my goals higher. But I don't have to overlook what we think of as little fruits. It's still the Spirit applying the work of Christ in your life. And again, that work's not your own. I love what Paul says. Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And I worked harder than any of them. At one point, there's a church in the Corinthian church, again, who's saying that Paul's probably not a real apostle because there's these really flashy new teachers that he calls super apostles. Right? And Paul says that if I'm an apostle, he says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And I worked harder than any of them. But it wasn't on me. It was God who worked in me. Two things can be true at the same time. You can work hard for the Lord, and you can know that that has nothing to do with your human nature. Right again, when we're told, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because it is God who works both to will and to do. So your desire for good works is not of yourself. And the conviction that we have to honor the Lord, we want to be holy because he is holy. The Bible says that there's a conviction that leads to repentance, and that is from the Holy Spirit. But there's also a grief that can come from the wrong kind of conviction, where you are despaired. Right? Who do you think is winning when you look at your sin, and instead of running to the cross for forgiveness and change, you just sit there and sulk in it? You think that's coming from the Holy Spirit? Who has a vested interest in Christians being despaired in their sins? Satan. So in the same way that you need to test the spirits, don't pat yourself on the back because you have such a down and out view of your sins. You're like, I'm, you know what, this is ultimately holiness because I'm so sad about my sin. But it doesn't lead you to the cross. Genuine conviction leads you to repentance. And genuine grace leads you to repentance. In the same way that grace doesn't lead to sin, conviction doesn't lead to idleness. And so take it to the cross. If you're not a Christian, none of this applies to you. Except for take it to the cross. Right? Don't do enough good works. Don't think you need to appeal to God on the basis of your you know, list of deeds. Go to God. And if you are a Christian, go to the Lord. Go to the Lord Jesus. Again, I, I reiterate that the Holy Spirit does not fail to apply the work of Jesus. The, the Father succeeded. The Son succeeded. The Holy Spirit succeeds. He'll get us to the end. So the command to be holy is not just a burdensome one. It's one that we can take seriously and joyfully. It's something that we can look at and we can say, I have a long way to go and I always will, but it's the work of the Holy Spirit in my life. I can say, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Not looking behind me, but striving forward to the lies ahead, I pursue the Lord in that way. I want to close reading from one of the most glorious, if not the most glorious doxology in the Bible from the book of Jude. And I want you to focus on who is the one who is able to keep us on the right path. This is Jude 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, 
Through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.